Welcome to UN Catch-Up Dateline Geneva, your weekly review of international news from the United Nations. Thanks for listening to the show. I'm Daniel Johnson, and over the next 15 minutes or so, we'll be focusing on the potentially massive boost to global cooperation of Joe Biden's arrival in the Oval Office, plus a warning from the World Health Organization over vaccine protectionism. We'll also be finding out about the International Labour Organization's efforts to end child labour in Myanmar as part of a year-long campaign to end the practice all over the world. And as ever, we'll be hearing from regular guests Solange Perrotegui-Cortez and Alpha Diallo. That's all coming up. We start the show in Myanmar, where the UN is doing its best to take children out of dangerous work, be it in jade mines or begging in the street. Heartbreaking stories, but there are solutions at a national and community level, as Salim Benessa from the International Labour Organization told me in this week's interview. Here he is now explaining the extent of the problem. The problem of child labour in Myanmar is uh, there are about 1.2 million children aged from 5 to 17 uh, that are into child labour. From them, more than half of them are actually in what is called hazardous work. So hazardous work, that could be anything from retrieving, recycling from rubbish tips to jade mining in the north. And maybe we'll get to that in a minute. Yes, it is exactly that. In Myanmar, particularly, you have a lot of informal work. So you mentioned about children working in dam sites or you have children in agriculture. Actually, based on, on the data we have, most of the children are into the agriculture sector. Okay, so most children are in agriculture. But one thing that really struck me was that more than half of those in child labour, 5.1% of the population, according to the International Labour Organization, uh, do dangerous work. Now, that's likely to harm their physical, mental or moral development. So what is it that the UN is trying to do with the Myanmar authorities to tackle this? The ILO, as well as other organisations, working very closely with the government back in 2014 when the project started there was very little data available on child labor and uh, since then we have produced quite a lot of different studies whether it is the labor force survey which is led by the government by the way we also working very closely with different stakeholders in terms of awareness raising about the issue and also looking at legislation and policies and how those are compliant international labor standards international conventions such as ILO convention 138 on the minimum age that Myanmar has just ratified last June, the Warsaw's uh, Child Labour Convention, uh, number 182, that was ratified uh, in 2013, and of course the UNCRC. We are working very closely with employers' organizations, with workers' organizations, as well as the civil society, whether it is at the national level, subnational levels, down at the community level. I was going to ask you about how COVID had impacted on children because it's exaggerated needs and made families more precarious, those that are most vulnerable, pulling children out of school in the need to get some money on the table and food on the table. Have you seen that personally? I haven't seen personally. Of course, we have restriction of movement, so we cannot go in the different regions as we used to before the pandemic. So you still see in the streets, or if you go in the city, you still see children working. Of course, the pandemic has put more pressure on families, on vulnerable families. There is still a school closure. Children are still not going into schools. Can I ask you, what is the main age of children working in Myanmar? Well, based on the study, we looked at 5 to 1, 17 years old, 
The data shows, uh, however, that you have more children that will drop out of school that are involved into child labor when they reach 8, 10 years old. And then where you have the highest, actually, it's children from 12 and above. And you can find this in the data that those children 14 and above are most likely to fall into hazardous work. And one thing we didn't touch on, Celine, would be the jade mine industry in the north. I know there's an official industry, but then on the side, there's perhaps tens of thousands of rural people going to look for the trailings and look for the little stones that might be worth something. What's the impact on children there? Yeah, mining, as you know very well, it's a hazardous type of work. And on this, we've produced a short video with our partners in Takant that shows the story of a little boy that is working in in one of those jade mines. And as you can see in the video, they are working in heights that can lead someone fall to death. So it is still a very sensitive issue here in the country due to where those mines are, which are often in conflict areas. We don't have yet data related to this issue, but we will address this issue soon. Thank you, Salim. It would be great also to talk about the wonderful photo exhibition you did on child labour, trying to raise awareness around Myanmar and some of the heartbreaking stories that you couldn't fail to be moved by, including the little girl who still occasionally wears her school uniform. She's so desperate to go back to school, but she has to beg, um, this kind of thing. I mean, the, the stories are heartbreaking. I think people would like to know what can they do to help? Well, first, a few words regarding the photo stories. Well, this is activities we've been working uh, with our partner, which is a photo doc association uh, and provides workshop on photojournalism with activists, with civil society organization. And those are captured, if you want, through a workshop. The output of the workshop are those photo stories. Some of them enter a competition through the Young on Photo Festival. So our approach was really much to build also awareness and capacity of those civil society organization of those activists so that they can, within their organization as well, provide awareness raising and using their photographies. So what people can do, as you certainly know, this year is the International Year on Child Labor. So there will be a lot of activities and we are encouraging and calling countries, organizations, even individuals to take action on this. And actually, as you know, certainly this is eliminating child labor is something that has to be done with coordination, working together and all that. So at an individual level, I think one of the key action is first to be well informed about the issue, then to look at also what is happening around your community and see how you can engage with the community leaders or with uh, the political branch, if you want, with the schools to really give more attention to this issue. Salim Benassa from the International Labour Organization there. Now the news. US President Joe Biden's decision to rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement only hours after taking office on Wednesday has been hailed by UN Chief Antonio Guterres. The development reverses the US announcement in June 2017 that it would pull out of the agreement to try to reduce global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels by limiting harmful carbon emissions. With all countries fully engaged, we have a real opportunity to prevent climate catastrophe and embark on transformative climate action, Mr Guterres tweeted. 
The UN Secretary-General has also welcomed Mr Biden's announcement that the US is re-engaging with the World Health Organization, WHO. It comes after the previous US administration gave notice in July 2020 that it intended to leave the UN agency. That decision would have taken effect in July this year, as the formal withdrawal requires 12 months' notice. The US is the largest donor to the UN Health Agency, contributing almost $893 million for its programs in 2018 to 2019. In a statement issued by his spokesperson, UN Chief Antonio Guterres said that supporting the WHO was absolutely critical to the world's effort for a better coordinated response against COVID-19. Meanwhile, the United States' top medical official said on Thursday that the US will join the WHO's global initiative to help poorer nations overcome COVID-19. Dr Anthony Fauci, chief medical advisor to President Biden, also unveiled a raft of new measures in support of access to universal health care, such as abortion. He told the WHO's executive that Mr Biden's intention was for the US to become part of the COVAX platform to advance multilateral efforts to distribute coronavirus vaccines, therapeutics and diagnostics. Dr Fauci also highlighted existing U.S. federal policy which blocks funding for organizations that provide counseling on abortion or related services, and said that President Biden will be revoking this to protect women's health and advance gender equality at home and around the world. Finally, and staying with the WHO, it has reiterated its concern about countries going it alone to secure sufficient COVID-19 vaccines for their populations, at the expense of poorer nations. At a press briefing in Geneva, the UN agency also called for much quicker international cooperation so that a large amount of doses could be rolled out to the countries that do not have the resources to purchase them themselves or to vaccinate. That work needs to be accelerated now, WHO spokesperson Dr Margaret Harris told journalists on Tuesday. She also urged drug manufacturers to supply WHO with complete information on their products so that they can be checked thoroughly before distribution. We want the manufacturers to submit their full dossiers so we as WHO can do the full examination of that in order to issue an emergency use listing because we can't put out the vaccines, you know, they can't be procured for those countries until they've got that emergency use listing. So The development comes 24 hours after WHO Chief Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus cautioned that while vaccines had brought hope to some, they had become another brick in the wall of inequality between the world's haves and have-nots. Some of this week's top stories there. And before that, Celine Benessa from the International Labour Organization on the work that it's doing with the authorities, central and local, employers and trades unions in Myanmar to push for the enforcement of agreed measures to eradicate child labour. There wasn't time to leave in the part about ILO Myanmar's success in reducing child labour by 55% in just three years in three target pilot communities. And that is thanks to grassroots programmes, working with parents, teachers and local leaders, and also the implementation of new savings schemes that have helped villagers to save and borrow money so that they don't need to resort to child labour when needs are high. Now as ever, it's time to wrap up this week's UN Catch-Up, so I'm happy to say hello once again to our regular guests Solange Bertegui cortez and Alpha Diallo from the UN Information Service in Geneva. Hola Daniel, hola Alpha. Hello Dan, hello Solange. It's great to hear you again, at a distance unfortunately still, but you know what, we'll just keep going. Solange, I know that the story of the little girl mentioned there as part of those photo stories in Myanmar really touched you. And it gets even worse, I'm afraid, as she is actually trying to get money to buy her grandmother medicine. Yeah, yeah, Daniel. You mentioned the story of this girl who had to drop out of school and she occasionally wears her school uniform to beg on the streets. And I was thinking, why? Because she missed her school or just because the uniform is simply clothes in a non-existent wardrobe? 
I mean, this girl is vulnerable and invisible because she is a child, a girl, poor, and maybe indigenous. In the last 20 years, almost 100 million children have been removed from child labor. Good, but we know now that the way to bring back them to a decent life is to encourage legislative and practical actions to eradicate child labor. And I wanted to say that in the context of the pandemic, it's good to wear masks, but even better if we as societies, we remove the blindfolds from our eyes. Thanks, Solange. And over to you, Alpha. What's clear is that although there's been huge progress in the last 20 years in removing 100 million children from child labour, progress across regions is uneven, isn't it? Yes, Don. Almost half of child labour happens in Africa. It's 72 million exactly. The African continent is followed by Asia and the Pacific. And 70% of children in child labor work in agriculture. Almost half of all these children work in occupations or situations considered risky for their health and lives. Let me illustrate this point with an example. Some 45 million children between the age of 5 and 14 depend on work for their survival in West Africa alone, according to the economic community of West Africa. And as you say, Dan, the situation is likely to be getting worse with the pandemic, which may reverse years of progress in the fight against child labor. But for many experts, the high poverty rate is not an excuse for allowing the new generation of children to miss educational opportunities and future access to decent work. Yes, absolutely, Alpha. That link between keeping children in school and away from child labour is very clear. But I think we all understand that what's needed is enforcement and the political will to ring in these much-needed changes. And why not this year, above all, the UN-led International Year for the Elimination of Child Labour, which the ILO launched this week in line with Target 8.7 of the 17 UN Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs. That brings us to the end of this episode of UN Catch-Up Dateline Geneva. Thanks to our regular guests, Solange Berrotegui-Cortez and Alpha Diallo, and indeed to you listeners wherever you are. I hope that you're doing okay and that we'll get to chat again next week. My name is Daniel Johnson. Until next time, bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>